Hello, everybody. This is Aaron Good. You are listening to the American Exception Podcast. In this episode, I'm fortunate to have a special guest co-host, the one and only Ben Howard. Ben and I are joined by Time Magazine's 2002 Co-Person of the Year, FBI whistleblower Colleen Rowley. Ben Howard and Peter Dale Scott and I wrote about Rowley's FBI experiences in the second part of our 20 Year Shadow of 9-11 series. That second part, for which Ben was really the lead author, was entitled, Why Did Key U.S. Officials Protect the Alleged 9-11 Plotters? You can find the link in the show notes. Our discussion was recorded around September 11th. We discussed Colleen Rowley's experiences related to the 9-11 terror spectacle. In particular, Rowley is notable for her ultimately unsuccessful efforts to get a warrant to search the laptop of the ridiculously suspicious Zacharias Massawi, the so-called 20th hijacker. At some point in the future, Ben and I are going to do a deeper dive into those articles. But for now, I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with the brave and righteous Colleen Rowley. I'm your host, Aaron Good, and today I'm joined by guest co-host Ben Howard, an independent researcher out of Massachusetts. We are talking today with Colleen Rowley, retired FBI agent and Time Magazine's Co-2002 Person of the Year. Colleen, it's great to be here with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So if you don't mind, I would like to start off by asking you how you got uh, started working with the FBI. You know, I think uh, this is a case also with military members. You know, most of us are just idealistic. And, you know, we grew up watching TV shows where the good guys are against the bad guys. I even see this with my own grandchildren. I mean, we all fall into this myth. And when I was young, the, the Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. shows, I mean, there was, uh, of course, my show was Mission, Im uh, yeah, Mission Impossible and uh, Man from Uncle. Man from Uncle was my favorite. And, you know, it was just a lot of, you know, spies and very cool. And I was I sat on interview boards and it turns out that's about 90 some percent of all people joined the FBI because they watched television shows and that thought they were going to be the good guys. And, you know, there were really good um, cases in the FBI, you know, kid child kidnapping cases, things like that where you really did think that you were, you know, doing something and help helping. Uh, of course, I also was early on exposed and it was a kind of a freak thing, but um, the national uh, lawyers guild had won their lawsuit when I first joined in 19, um, 1981, 1982. And that the FBI would had to process uh, dozens and really, I think, hundreds of files on the National Lawyers Guild that were that was a part of COINTELPRO. So it had taken the Lawyers Guild seven years to win their lawsuit. And finally, these stacks of files existed. And in the office I was in, the, the uh, legal counsel in the office had a whole huge stack. And he said, I could use some help to review these because we had to black out names and things. So I started, you know, I only had about a year, maybe two years in, and I was reading those files from COINTELPRO. And so then you realize that uh, the FBI has not always been the good guys with the white hats. 
And the other thing that happened is an older agent, um, he was either retired or going to retire. One day, this older agent who had been involved in the COINTELPRO stuff and had gotten into some trouble afterwards because some of them did after it was found out, um, he said, don't ever do this. He kind of was like, you know, you're a new agent. He goes, yeah, we got carried away. You know, just always keep your you know, ethics and whatever. And he goes, my supervisor was be trying to pro being prosecuted, you know, don't ever do this. And that kind of stuck with me. Um, but, you know, basically we all thought we were doing uh, good and we were working on the side of justice. Who, who doesn't want to be for justice, you know? Yeah, that's funny. There's the, the, there was the old show on the FBI, which is just called G-Men or what was the name of the old FBI show? The FBI story. There was one on by Jimmy Stewart, which was a movie, and it, Jimmy Stewart was the uh, main star. And then there was a series with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. But m the show that I watched all the time was Man from Uncle, <laughs> and uh, it was about two spies that were the good guys. And uh, you know, I I was so young. I was only in like fifth or sixth grade, and I wrote to the the town newspaper, this little Iowa town I lived in. And I wrote to the, I wrote a letter to the editor. I said, when I grow up, I want to join uncle. Can you give me their address? You know, I was only in fifth grade. And so the, they wrote a response back and said, well, that's fictional little girl. But in the, in the United States, we have something similar called the FBI. And they gave me the address for the FBI. And so then I actually, I was real into it. I wrote the FBI. I turned around and I said, I want to join. I'm 12 years old and, and whatever. They sent me back this little uh, booklet that they were sending to everybody for maybe 20, 30 years that J. Edgar Hoover had a direct role in. And it was all these questions and facts about the FBI. And buried in these facts was, why can't women join the FBI? One of wow. them, why can't women become FBI agents? And I read this cover to cover and I get to that part. And I, I thought to myself, well, that's stupid. It'll probably change, you know. But I actually remember seeing this whole little thing. It was all cool until you got to why can't women become a <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the other, the, the propaganda in general, you mentioned, mentioned uh, Mission Impossible. And that, that was actually based on Robert Mayhew. And the way that it's always uh, depicted in the series and in the, uh, and, and, and the movies, too, is that well, they're going to handle some things that are like maybe too difficult for the CIA. But really, his role in real life was to do the the things that were too criminal for the criminals at the CIA, like to to go and uh, set up the Castro Mafia assassination plots. Like that's one of them. So it's very funny the way that they picture it. And you're thinking, oh, these guys must be really elite. They must be really good at their job, and they must be the super good guys. When in fact, they're like they're so bad that they like they're the ones that the CIA uses to distance themselves from stuff that's too bad even for them so yeah because uh, in in those shows it was like if you got caught you were supposed to kill yourself <laughs> you know something like that you were supposed to swallow a poison pill or something i mean right. i always got that impression yeah i'm yeah. they never they never made made make regular agents do that i guess that's more scary <laughs> to think of <laughs> um okay so uh, what was your role at the uh, field office in Minneapolis as uh, you were? So 
So when I got transferred to Minneapolis in 1990, I had the slot of uh, being the legal counsel, but I also had all these other hats. So I was the Freedom of Information head of that. I was, um, I became for a few years the uh, office spokesperson for media matters. I was the victim witness coordinator. I was the forfeiture uh, coordinator. So I had maybe a couple others as well. So it was kind of, they were all kind of indirectly related to legal stuff. But I did that for 13 years from 1990 until I became a whistleblower at, about the Iraq war. Uh, and so after I wrote this second letter to Mueller in February of 2003, because he was, of course, on the side, you know, we got to go get Saddam. And he had told me that I, that after the um, after I met him uh, in May of 2002 for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, he said, if there's ever anything like this again, Colleen, you can come directly to me. And so he had told me this the night before I testified to the Senate Judiciary, kind of trying to co-op me, I'm sure. And um, so then when, you know, we were a few months later, we were going to war on Iraq and uh, Mueller's lying his head off about sleeper cells and all of this. I wrote him this letter, um, February, I want to say 24th or something like that. I wrote him a letter, an email, sent it up to him an email. Of course, he never responded. And as the t clock ticked away, into March, and they were saying that the United States was going, the, the military was already on the borders ready. I panicked, uh, and I went to the New York Times with that letter, and it was in their front page, one of the very few front page articles that was in opposition to the uh into the uh, invasion of Iraq. At the, by that time, the war fever was so high. And then my office absolutely hated me because, again, they all pretty much all had war fever, you know, all excited about going into Iraq. So then I stepped down from my legal counsel position in about April, uh, the two weeks later, you know, end of March or so, I stepped down from the legal. But I was that for 13 years. Then the last year and a half to try to make it to retirement to get my pension, I pretty much volunteered for every really bad job they had in the office because I was just trying to make it, one of which was informant coordinator, and I had to do informant compliance matters, which was kind of interesting because you see all the problems with informants and operating informants, but I did that the last year. Okay, and... Um so in the time leading up to this Masawi uh, arrest and this, you know, this investigation into Masawi, what was it like in, in the Minneapolis office in terms of like counter terror and, uh, and, and, and related issues? Well, you know, being in the middle of the country, um, the offices that have most of the counterintelligence and could be counterterrorism are going to be on the coast. And they're going to be, um, you know, near foreign establishments, embassies, and things like that. So Minnesota doesn't have too much. And that was one of the reasons probably why headquarters discounted uh, people knowing what they were doing uh, because, you know, there wasn't that much of that type of work or cases. But the agent, he only had a couple, three years in, had a background in intelligence and the, the Minneapolis office had just formed a joint intelligence, uh, joint terrorism task force. So they had formed this one, this joint terrorism task force a couple, three months before. And then Sam when he get, when he got 
the calls from these flight instructors, two different flight instructors call from the flight school separately, and they were whistleblowers. They landed on the agent in the office who actually this all clicked with him because he knew about Mm. piloting. He was in the Navy and intelligence. And so this all clicked right away. Really, after they went out the very next day and did uh, just a little more work and some more interviewing, they pretty much knew it, knew that all the whole case. And in fact, that agent came into my office within just a couple, three days when he was doing the write up for the emergency request for a FISA search of, of Musawi's belongings. And he actually identified the criminal statues, uh, statutes that were later used to prosecute Musawi. And this is just Hmm. a few days, one of which was interference with an aircraft. It's a federal law. Hmm. I've never even really heard of it, but federal interference with a federal, uh, with a federal uh, aircraft. And um, that was actually what he was convicted of. And he, and Samet knew it, you know, three, four days later. I mean, so, so these agents really knew what they were doing. Now the problems arose, there's a, there are myriad, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but there was this long standing problem of uh, contradictory guidance about the wall. And so you open something up as an intelligence matter because uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was seen as less probable cause it, you didn't have to uh, prove that a crime had occurred. You just had to prove that somebody was an agent of a foreign government or a foreign terrorist group, which is easier. So then the problem, though, over the years was, well, if you could go get a FISA, why would you ever get a criminal? Because you could just get the FISA warrant and it would be a way around the Fourth Amendment standard. And this is this goes right back to the compromise after the church committee in 1978. And these things hadn't really been ironed out. And so there was all this mutually contradictory guidance about when something was criminal and uh, intelligence at the same time. And you try to explain it to people now and they just shake their heads. They can't even understand it. And in fact, even at the time, there were many legal counsel, my peers would be raising their hands in, in legal conferences, and it none of it made a whole lot of sense to anyone, except, except it's true, if you have an easier way around the Fourth Amendment, and you don't have to show the Fourth Amendment probable cause, it is ripe for abuse. Absolutely. And that's what people were afraid of at the time. And after 9-11, that went away. So now they they just abuse it if they want. You you saw that with um, uh, tr- the um, the FISA warrants on uh, what's his name? The guy that worked that was uh, Manafort, maybe so what, the people, the Russiagate that, people. Yeah, the Russiagate ones. But it, uh, he he was a former uh, military officer, and he was a volunteer. You know, he was he wasn't even anybody in the Trump administration. They they surveilled him under FISA for over a year with no problem mm-hmm. cause. You know, I forget his name now, but it's well known. And they absolutely abused the FISA process. You know, Grassley and some of the senators just uh, reamed him out, but it was never fixed. But this guy had, there was no probable cause on him. They used the steel dossier. They used that steel dossier to be the, the crux of the probable cause. I'll remember his name, Larry, someone. Oh, gosh, what's his name? But he was working in the Trump campaign in a minor way, and they thought that if they they surveilled him, then they would be able to get more surveillance on Trump. 
And right. uh, that's that's what happened after 9-11. I mean, the, the, the standards really went down and they don't even worry about the wall anymore. Yeah. I, I wasn't aware that the Joint Terrorism Task Force was so recent to the Musawi arrest. And obviously that was a critical piece of it um, because it involved the INS being able to arrest him. But I guess during that, uh, you know, as we know now that beginning, so obviously we could talk more about this this memo that went to Director Free about uh, the connection between him and Kitab and Osama bin Laden and the idea that they were planning attacks. We also know that there were indications from within the CIA there were concerns about an upcoming attack from bin Laden, from Al-Qaeda. Was that sort of thing percolating in, in Minneapolis at that time? Were, were you aware of that kind of thing uh, or, or not? I would say, you know, as the legal counsel, um, I was vaguely aware, maybe just mm-hmm. vaguely aware. Um, mm-hmm. Samet and his supervisor were, mo- were, were more aware. Absolutely. Picard did, uh, the acting director uh, did send out some, things. I don't, I don't remember if I've saw them or not, but he did send out some things, you know, now the April 2001 memo that was actually addressed by name to eight, seven or eight assistant directors that didn't, that didn't go to the field. And in fact, that memo was so buried. It's my understanding that that wasn't even given to the joint intelligence committee. You, that right. wasn't a scene until in the, it was an exhibit in the Musawi trial many years later. And that's where the former New York uh, Times reporter saw it. And they're oh my gosh, there's a memo, you know, that said this. And in the FBI just never, either they didn't know about, didn't know about it themselves. I, I can't believe that. Or they just buried it. They didn't want, you know, they didn't want people to see all this dirty laundry. It's so interesting because that memo itself says within it that that field offices should be briefed about this kind of thing, and it sounds like that just never that just never happened. At least with at least with Minneapolis. Well, the 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 seven assistant director officials whose names are on it deny having right. seen it. Not to right. mention the people lower level; they even deny right. having seen. And one of them was directly above Frasca. He, he also said he wasn't briefed about the case. Later, he finally owned up that he was, or, just like Spike Bowman, he was orally briefed just for a few minutes. And no one knows the content of those oral briefings because no one's ever been able to, you know, at the time, of course, the reason this was covered up even for eight months, when I wrote that letter, part of, the, uh, part of the, my memo to Mueller, part, there were a couple of reasons. One is there probably had been somebody i can't imagine somebody didn't say we should the fbi should open an internal investigation of what went wrong you know but up until my memo there had been no internal investigation in the fbi and i wanted from what i knew of way they were they were making up a very self-protective timeline and headquarters the legal legal counsels were doing this and like they were leaving out key uh, critical information uh, that, of course, made them look bad, but they were putting in information that, you know, made them look good. So uh, one of the things were were these oral briefings. And I, you know, I called up and I said, you know, um, why are you leaving out that, um, that, okay, I'm trying to think of what it was that I complained about in this timeline. In this timeline, there was, uh, okay, on the day of 9-11, I uh, was on the phone with the supervisor, and we were still arguing to get this uh, per- permission, 
You had to get permission to get a criminal warrant, to go seek a criminal warrant. We were still arguing. And I said, well, you know, this can't be a coincidence. This is incredible. I said, if this was a coincidence, it'd have to be the biggest coincidence in the world. He responded back. Yeah, that's probably what it is. It's just a coincidence. And this is like as the, the planes have already hit the towers and he and I have a supervisor saying it's just a coincidence. Now, when they did the timeline uh, to to uh, for, you know, further oversight, they were they were with the eye to oversight. They left that out. I said I right. was on the phone with him on that day and he said it was a coincidence. And of course, that was left out of the timeline. And they said, well, the re- we, uh, we're not putting in anything oral, Colleen. We can't, we're not putting in oral things. It has to be in writing. But you know what was in the timeline were all these oral briefings to the National Security Law Unit and to Rollins, you know, or Rollins, it wasn't in there, but to the to the National Security Law Unit. That was oral briefing, too. But that was in there. I mean, so there were there was just a whole myriad of things like this. And, and really, without having a uh, objective investigation, how do you ever get to the bottom of it? You know, when I testified to the Senate Judiciary, I had to give a reason why I was there because people are saying, what the, why the heck would you say this? Don't embarrass the Bureau. You know, why in the heck would you do this? And so I really had to dig deep on why I would have done this. And, the, and the, I had three reasons, four reasons. But the main reason was, you know, of course, the victims of this, the family members will never uh, rest until they know the truth. That was one big reason. But the other reason is how in the heck are you going to fix this pro- these problems? And already we were going to the global war on terror. Is that the, is that the answer to fixing it? When you, when you know that people didn't even read memos or claim they didn't read memos and all these, all these other things, all these other problems, how you're, how are you going to fix it? Um, so of course they didn't care about fixing the problems. I didn't, you know, realize this, but no one cared about fixing the problems. So the truth doesn't matter because you have an agenda, you have a prior agenda, you get your quote unquote new Pearl Harbor and no one cares about the truth of what actually happened and then actually fixing it in order to try and reduce terrorism or try to do better the next time that, that really wasn't even part of the, uh, people weren't, weren't caring about that, you know? But um, yeah. that's what we should, obviously, that's, that's the thing. Yeah. Um, so I, maybe I'll go back and sort of mention some of these figures because there's a lot of names that get thrown around and it might be good to explain some of them. And so I'll, I'll start with the uh, Musawi's guru of sorts or his spiritual and logistical, uh, whatever, mentor, uh, who we, who we just mentioned, Al-Khattab, maybe that's how you pronounce the name, um, who was, uh, he was born in Saudi Arabia, but he was, he, he fought all over the place, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, uh, Dagestan, and Chechnya. And the FSB, you know, the Russian version of, uh, is it the Russian version of this, of the FBI? Is that right? I think so. Or is it, or is it just sort of their general intelligence agency? Well, anyway, the Russian security services, FSB, uh, identified him as the mastermind behind the 1999 Russian apartment bombings, which have become controversial in, in a low-key way because those were attributed by some people as a false flag attack. It, it, and I find that interesting in that it's 
usually the things that are bad that are said about Putin are amplified a lot. And yet that one is one that you're, unless you follow these things pretty closely, you don't hear them talk about. So it's interesting yeah. why they would choose to sort of mute that criticism of Putin when he gets blamed for everything else under the sun on the basis of very little evidence. But I digress a little bit. Um, he had supposedly denied uh, his involvement with that attack. But at any rate, he eventually uh, gets killed in March 2002, apparently following exposure to a poisoned letter uh, that delivered by a courier who had been somehow flipped by the uh, Russian security service. Hmm. So this is the fellow who French intelligence informed uh, your office, Colleen, that, that he was, you know, directly connected to uh, Masawi. And, and they, that apparently wasn't good enough to get a, a FISA warrant because of it being Chechen and not directly al-Qaeda, but somehow a branch of jihadism that wasn't, they determined wasn't part of bin Laden's organization. Yeah. And, you know, this is all complicated by the fact that the United States was behind, funded and armed the jihadists uh, that Zbigniew Brzezinski came up with this idea that we will give the Soviet Union their their Vietnam um, if we get these jihadists in Afghanistan to fight against the Russians. And, uh, and of course, he, he kind of, you know, whatever, trapped, trapped the, the Russians or got them to come in. That's Charlie, that movie, Charlie Wilson's War. And it, see, that complicates everything because it, obviously it looks like Al-Khattab and bin Laden were, were proxy forces for the United States for a long period of time. And that's when they, you know, they were in, definitely entwined. They they were knew each other. They were these jihadists. A lot of them came from Saudi Arabia. I think they came from some other places as well. But the the, the mujahideen jihadists that the United States armed and funded and pushed to be fighting the Soviet Union uh, were a lot of them were from Saudi Arabia. And so then when this kind of starts turning. Later, with bin Laden, must have gotten mad. I mean, I've heard some different theories of why he got mad about, you know, and and it makes sense because he apparently one of his motives was that the United States kept permanent military bases in Saudi Arabia after the first Gulf War. And so when you see the evidence now, the indications, they're not official indications, but if you look at all the evidence, there's a lot of evidence that al-Qaeda was responsible for the Cobar Towers bombing of this Air Force dormitory that killed 19 U.S. airmen and uh, injured, uh, wounded over 300 um, in 1996. And that was, you know, if you look at the cover-up after 9-11, that was even a worse cover-up because uh, the FBI acting, the FBI director at the time, Louis Free, just took the Saudis' word for it that that must have been their enemies, the Saudis' enemies, who were responsible for that bombing. But it looks like, you know, along with the, the African embassies and the coal uh, bombing and stuff, Al-Qaeda had somehow, weren't our pro they weren't our proxy force anymore. <laughs> they they uh, 
you know, we're starting to get and, and some agents in the New York office started to realize this with the coal bombing and stuff, but it took a long time. And I think covering up the coal, if in fact the, the Cobar Towers was covered up and attributed to completely innocent people, we don't know that for sure, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence and a lot of even former officials think now that it was Al-Qaeda for a lot of reasons. And if you if you think about that, that's pretty egregious. And that kind of lays the groundwork now for why supervisors and headquarters uh, don't think that there could be Al-Qaeda planning to do anything in the United States. I mean, it's it's part and parcel of the whole thing. And this problem of of uh, both Al-Qaeda and um, and uh, bin Laden having worked for the United States, you know, in years gone by. Yeah, because you. You, you know, say that it was it was 96 that the Kobar Towers bombing was, but the U.S. was still using Al Qaeda in Kosovo a couple of years after that. So it, I mean, they were they were using Al Zawahiri specifically, or his brother Muhammad Al Zawahiri. So it, it's how are they able to like be on the one hand say go and you know perpetrate all this murderous mischief in Kosovo, and then when the Serbs respond, we'll call them you know, genocidal maniacs so we can bomb them and break up that country and then put a big military base, yada, yada. So they're saying that in 92 or not, I'm sorry, in 98, 99, but the, but then they're attacking them with the Kobar Towers thing in 96, presumably, and the embassy bombings and the, so how can, you know, this is, this is a question that they don't get into in the 9-11 thing. How are they able to direct them all through the nineties and yet still have this happen? You know, this this really is the fundamental problem here is that foreign policy, na national security, global chessboard strategies that somebody comes up with on, if you want to call it the intelligence or the national security side, which do involve using proxies, many times some pretty, uh, some pretty bad proxy forces, you know, they're not uh, we, we do this in Syria just recently. We're still doing it all over the world. We're using, we're in Africa, we pick different rebel groups. And, and a lot of times they're not the most, uh, you know, stand up people, but we are doing that for one purpose. We're like Brzezinski. It's the global chessboard, and we're playing this strategy out. Now we're, we're claiming that, you know, it's uh, we're helping solve crimes and we're helping reduce terrorism. So that's for public consumption. And, you know, I guess if, if those things don't conflict with each other, it's all fine. But they often do conflict with each other. And I think that's exactly what you just I was going to jump in and say, that's the problem is these these foreign policy imperialist, you know, Pax Americana goals are are inherently in conflict with trying to have a rule of law and, and, and having uh, international, especially international law, where you're not supposed to be using proxy forces to, to topple governments, et cetera. And so when, when, we, when we tell the people that we want it, like I said, we, we, I was thought, okay, who, who didn't think we were supposed to reduce terrorism? But, you know, I, you know, I've been disabused of that after 20 years of watching because, no, we went right back to arming Syrian jihadists. They funneled off all the same Saudis and, and other jihadists from all over Europe even into Syria to do the exact same thing that we did in Afghanistan. It was just history repeating. And, again, this is the problem. I think this is the problem because you have to – it's a – without really – 
you know, somebody needs to tell the truth about these foreign policy. Now, they'll always say leadership. You know, the United States has to has a leadership role, but that's not leadership. It's it's illegal. It's unethical. It's not leadership at all. It's, you know, sneaky stuff that the CIA does to do regime changes and stuff. And they use, um, by the way, in the United States, domestically, there's a parallel with the with operating what the FBI called top echelon criminal informants. Whitey Bulger, head of the Boston uh, Irish mob, was operated for 20 years, even though he was murdering people. And a lot of people, it wasn't just the four agents that they kind of pinned this on. Really, lots and lots of people knew that Whitey Bulger was a top echelon informant. In New York, I worked organized crime in New York. And my own supervisor, he was only my supervisor for one year, he was prosecuted for murder. His name was Lynn DeVecchio. He was operating a, a high-level guy in the Colombo family, top echelon. And so while this was working, you know, and he was murdering, he was murdering all kinds of people too. That's why my supervisor ended up being prosecuted for murder. So this is the same type of thing. You know, the, the rationale is, oh, we have to work. We have to deal with the devil. We have these, you know, if it's good to get a low level uh, mobster or a girlfriend of a mobster to give you info. Isn't it better to get the boss of the family to give you the info? So, I mean, all the years I was working organized crime, almost nobody recognized that that was a problem to be operating the bosses of the organized crime family. Not somebody at the low level, you know, in theory, okay, someone at the low level, if they're not murdering and stuff, can be telling you information. That's that's right. But the the heads of the office, the heads of the organized crime who are doing murders cannot shouldn't be operating as your proxy force. And that actually that those two are known. I, I'm not speaking out of school here. Both the DeVecchio is a 60 minutes, and um, and uh, of course Whitey Bulger got to know. And I always tell people, I can't tell you about the other cases, but frankly, they're the tip of the iceberg because there's yeah. more that never became publicly known. And I, you know, people kill me for saying that, but it's true because you know why? Under enormous pressure, uh, you're under enormous pressure. And the only way your career soared to the top is to get top echelon informants. And, you know, that was what, that's how you, you got promoted and everything is, is doing there's a, another agent now. It was in the New York Times. I read this long, thousands and thousands of, of a Word article. He got, he got sentenced to prison for four years recently. Terry Albury is his name. I didn't know him at all, but he was in the Minnesota office. And he's, <clears throat> he, wrote, he became a, a kind of a whistleblower to The Intercept about all of these wrongful spying on innocent people, all of this crazy stuff that happened after 9-11. And, you know, this is the same, <clears throat> this is what people don't, don't re rein it in. And, you know, operating, operating informants that are under so much pressure. Yeah, this, I mean, it's all these things that you're talking about are, uh, I don't, I mean, they're not, they're not funny. They're deadly serious, but you know, I'm amused because a lot of this is what I base my dissertation on that, you know, different, points that you make, which is that global empire is antithetical to the rule of law. You can't really have a democracy with the rule of law and transparency and public sovereignty 
if you're going to empower the intelligence agencies to break every law in the book around the world, violating treaties that are ratified, like the UN, uh, the UN Charter, which outlaws aggression and all that. And so this is, uh, you know, the problem, what, what it means is that unlike the Nazi state where you had this empowered, you know, fear principle and a dictator, we have the pretense of the rule of law which means that you're going to have to have cover stories and cover-ups all the time, you know, ongoing, just as a sort of systemic, institutionalized, uh, you know, uh, uh, phenomenon where the, the, the clandestine cover-up side of it and then, uh, you know, the sort of myths that, what, the, that the way it works is not the way that it works. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. And uh, the other issue is the informants and that goes back also with the U.S. in World War II when they spring Meyer Lansky and uh, Lucky Luciano from prison. And I mean, those are the top, those are the leaders of the syndicate, the, the biggest organized crime entity that there is. And they later in the 60s recruit all those people for the Cuban business, you know, the, the, orga, the underworld of organized crime and the, the overworld of the corporate rich in America. Uh, are often more connected throughout history than is than people realize in terms of upholding the order and policing it in different ways. And then the the the, the bureaucracies are sort of there in between them, uh, you know, uh, working these these things and keeping them concealed from people. So it's you know what you're talking about with the FBI and you are involved in trying to catch bad guys sometimes, and this being your, a good motivation for a lot of people. And then there's this other side of it where they just are sort of the people behind the curtains, you know, making sure that uh, the things that events unfold the way that, you know, that they want them to. It's uh, I mean, I had to it must have been an education for you to see more and more of this side, uh, this sort of darker side emerge over the decades. Yeah, that's why this New York Times article about Terry Albury is because it takes him years and years. Little you see one little thing. I actually, in the late 90s, uh, saw these cozy relationships with informants and sexual relationships, lots of sexual relationships. And I realized that um, I was the legal counsel. I looked it up in the manual. There was nothing prohibiting. The FBI did not prohibit sexual relationships with informants. And I knew of quite a number of them. Uh, There were actually two separate supervisors in Chicago having sex affairs with the same Chinese asset. And they, they basically got no punishment, just a little nothing, you know, just a little tiny thing uh, after they were caught uh, on this. And she got, you know, there's, there's example of, she got actual, she went in and stole their documents. She actually got, and she was working for a foreign country. They got almost no punishment. Every whistleblower who was uh, disclosed illegal drone warfare or like Alberry are disclosing all of these spying on innocent people. They they go to prison for four years. So the the thing that protects this system and keeps people from realizing it for a long time is secrecy. So the classification system, which Daniel Ellsberg said, you know, maybe one or two percent are really secret. And even those secrets, like where we're going to land in World War II on on Normandy Beach, you know, that has to be secret. But not after the landing. Then everybody knows. So they they have to be temporarily secret. Most of these secrets, we still have secrets from 40, 50 years that, that freedom of information won't let go. The narrative that they spew by prosecuting these whistleblowers 
uh, Snowden and Julian Assange. And I mean, all and and you know, I was lucky. I was really lucky uh, for a lot of reasons. I had four senators who went to bat for me and wrote letters to both um, the Attorney General Ashcroft and to Director Mueller, uh, Director Mueller that I shouldn't be fired. But uh, and it was all kind of all before this this war on terror that where they went crazy on putting whistleblowers who who disclosed war crimes in prison. But they the narrative is that secrecy is protecting us. I wrote this long piece a long time ago about how if you if the public and this actually comes from the 9-11 commission, the, the major finding now the 9-11 commission, because Zellico wrote it. He covered up all the Saudi involvement. He, you know, there's a lot of things in there that are not good. He, he will say he didn't have enough time, but there, it's not a anything. Uh, it's not a great document, the 9/11 Commission report. But I think they got one thing right, which is that the 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 failure to connect the dots, which was agencies not sharing information internally, uh, even between their own, uh, you know, going up the going up the chain of command, which is the Musawi case, and then uh, a- agencies not sharing information between uh, agencies, the NSA, the CIA, not telling the FBI that the hijackers had come into California until it was too late, um, and other things that were not shared. Uh, so agencies not sharing with each other. And then, so it's vertical, it's horizontal. And then the last thing that this, the, the uh, 9-11 Commission said is sharing with the public. That has been totally forgotten. And they, they even said if, if they had known about the Musawi arrest, that may have deterred the attacks from taking place. So that's the 9-11 Commission that came up with that. So sharing with the public is a big deal. Um, when they put out uh, some warnings, I'm trying to, well, of course, the, the one flight that crashes in Pennsylvania, they had 10 minutes of knowledge and of information, not very many minutes. They just knew a little bit. And that's what kept that plane probably from hitting the Congress or the White House is because the passengers knew. But the, the other three planes, they didn't have any knowledge at all. So there's many examples. I'm trying to think of this other one. I think the Times Square bomber, uh, it's it's just somebody in the public sees smoke coming up from a, uh, the car. So most, most of the thwarted, uh, terrorism things have not been the FBI. The FBI did all these stings and entrapments of innocent people, uh, you know, doing a lot of stuff like that. But really, and, the, and then they didn't uh, prevent some terrorism. But the ones that were prevented, the shoe bomber, the underwear bomber, they were stopped by members of the public. And so this, this, this notion that government secure, secrecy is protecting us. If I don't know, I'll be protected. They're going to protect me. And this is just a very, uh, you know, it's a very authoritarian thing. You know, it kind of probably comes out of the Milgram social psychology stuff. People want to be protected. And, you know, frankly, they would prefer not to know bad things. But the truth is the public, whenever we were looking for a fugitive, I, I knew information sharing with the public is key. That's how we caught fugitives on America's Most Wanted. We would never have caught some of these fugitives that were on the lam for 20 years. You had to share the information with the public. Otherwise, you know, it's it's uh, we always said, come on, you know, members, if it's a Ponzi scheme, if it's Bernie Madoff, everybody's benefiting from it. 
uh, you know, unless the bookkeeper somehow gets a crisis or something comes in. The FBI is never going to know about it. That can go on. A Ponzi scheme can go on for 20 years. But we watched Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., who was omniscient on TV and, and somehow his great clues and all of these kind of really dramatic made up stories. They're not true at all. Almost all crimes and whatever are solved by members of the public coming in to tell the FBI. That doesn't make for good television, but that's how they're solved. And so, again, going back to the 9-11, it's the number one thing. Sharing of information is, is absolutely key. We should have fixed that. We probably didn't need to go to war and bomb five or six countries that had nothing to do with 9-11. We didn't need to launch all these massive spying operations, targeting of Muslims, uh, 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 torture, torture programs. I mean, everything that was illegally uh, done, wrong done after 9-11 has nothing to do with the, the problems. And again, you know, because there was little or no truth. Uh, I go back to COINTELPRO and because there was one whistleblower in the kind of a whistleblower, Sullivan, uh, who ended up coming clean. I think he was part and parcel of it. We worked for J. Edgar Hoover, and he, but he knew everything because he was under Hoover. And eventually, he told Frank Church, and he told him what had been going on. Well, you know, the only agency that ended up with some kind of fix to the, the abuses of COINTELPRO, the FISA law that came out of it, the attorney general guidelines that came out of the church committee, you know, the, the only agency that had those restrictions put on after this whole COINTELPRO era was the FBI, probably because somebody told the public and that was the church committee. The CIA had a chaos program. The NSA had a minaret program. We still don't know about those things because nobody ever talked about those. And to, so to this day, they, they were not never really fixed. I, again, this is my beef. Um, I know it's completely counterintuitive to people in power. They love secrecy and they will put secrecy on anything. You're, you're not supposed to classify something secret if it's to cover up a crime. They do it all the time. Whitey Bulger, perfect example. Perfect example. Uh, that was only found out because of us assiduous reporters and I think one judge. Otherwise, that would still all be secret because it was covering up all his crimes. Yeah, uh, he was also uh, an MK Ultra subject, I believe. So there's a whole, there, he, he yes. opens up a whole other wormhole or rabbit hole that, I, that I, we can't really get into. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned Sullivan because, uh, as I recall, he was uh, a, a person, you said that he had some sort of, con, uh, you know, uh, attack of conscience or something. And he told his friend, uh, Robert Novak, the conservative columnist, he said, if I ever die, you know, uh, don't believe the story of it. And, uh, you know, during the House Select Committee on Assassinations, they were he was somebody that they would have wanted to question about Hoover and the uh, investigation into the Kennedy assassination. And he gets shot by uh, somebody who mistook him for a deer. Uh, like the son of a of a local sheriff who was charged with manslaughter, I guess. But oh, I, I just shot the number two man at the FBI, and that was that was it for him. Uh, and so, you know, William Colby is another guy who kind of also had a, a attack of conscience later in his life and also died in weird ways. But um, we're going to take a, a short break, and then when we come back, 
we'll get into another crime that the neither the public nor the FBI could get to the bottom of in time, and uh, that involves uh, our, I don't want to call him our friend, but uh, Zacharias Masawi. So in just a second, we'll return. Colleen, uh, could you set the stage here by uh, just talking about Masawi, you know, getting back to the beginning of who this guy, who this guy was and why he becomes this kind of footnote to history, uh, his uh, actions and what, how your office responded to to him? Okay. I'll do my best. I don't have, I haven't refreshed my memory by looking at the draft declaration or, um, but well, the FBI office on, I think it was August 15th, 2001, uh, got two separate calls from flight instructors at a flight school in Egan, a uh, suburb of, of the Twin Cities. Uh, these flight instructors uh, didn't even know each other was calling, uh, and they were going against their bosses because he was a paying customer. You know, they could have gotten, and they actually, I think, did get into trouble. They called the FBI and said, you know, we got this really suspicious flight, uh, flight student. So that those two instructors, though, were not his actual instructor. The actual instructor did call the FBI. But when the eight, um, our FBI agent who was, you know, had, knew a lot about, knew, had a background in intelligence and even was had some, you know, knowledge of Al-Qaeda and, and bin Laden and stuff, uh, he grabbed an INS uh, agent and they went out and did some quick work. They interviewed a roommate that had come up with Musawi, Zacharias Musawi. He had come up from Oklahoma where he had uh, taken um, flight school, um, not to fly a jet, but just a personal plane, you know, the very first uh, pilot's license you can get. And I think he had failed that and <laughs> failed his pilot's training in Oklahoma and then the thing that made him the quote unquote most suspicious flight student that that instructor had ever seen, um, there were a whole bunch of things. But one is uh, he uh, put down cash for the lesson and he didn't have a, re- a reasonable explanation. He said it was an ego boosting uh, reason. He, I just wanted it's an ego booster, which didn't make it much sense. The flight instructor they tried to kind of question him a little bit, and he questioned him about his uh, being a Muslim, and all of a sudden he just tightened up. There were things that, you know, he was uh, asking about how do I land the plane or how do I uh, take off, and, and uh, they always say he didn't want to know how to take off and land, but his questions, however it was phrased, were very weird, and they struck the flight instructor as weird. Um, then the agents, when they went out to talk, do that that first night and talk to him, uh, they found some incriminating weird things too. They found some uh, like brass knuckles and and some other manuals, and the the roommate uh, added to it. So they they called me that night. So that this they took him into custody because uh, the agent who was Harry Salmon who testified in the Musawi trial right off the bat said, you know, it's dangerous for him. We don't know what he's up to. And so his visa had lapsed. So they took him along with all his personal effects into custody. 
Well, then I get a call about nine o'clock that night. I think I was already in bed for some reason. I almost never got called by agents at night unless a shooting or something like that occurred. It had to be very important for them to call me at night. And it was the supervisor. And he said, you know, this is unbelievable what we've just come across. This could really be something. So he goes through the all of the litany and he says, can we can we search? Uh, you know, can we search his belongings? And, you know, I had to give the advice. This is, of course, not too long after um, uh, O.J. Simpson, where you do something as an emergency search without a warrant. You, you know, in that case, that guy jumped over a fence and found the bloody gloves or whatever it was. So those are frowned on. And judges will often suppress evidence if you don't get a warrant. Um, now, in hindsight, of course, it was an emergency. But I said, well, no, come back to the office and, and you know, write up a uh, your probable cause and then seek seek a warrant. So it became more complicated after that because this was uh, uh, intelligence instead of a criminal matter. And headquarters had to give you permission to go criminal. Uh, this is this this all this issue of the wall that goes back to misinterpretations and mutually contradictory advice about it from from the 90s uh, that nobody could understand. And uh, so they the uh, agent not only quickly drafted up everything, it was many pages long, but he sent out leads to both uh, Paris and to uh, to uh, the UK. Now, in Paris, the young agent that got that lead just knew right. He all he had to do was read it just like me, just like everybody else. You just read it and went, oh, my gosh. He ran it to the French authorities. The French authorities went, oh, my, this is our the terrorist uh, dossier that we have. And they sent back one uh, bit of information initially. Then they checked further and they sent another part a couple of days later. So when this was all added up into an uh, emergency uh, FISA uh, request, not the regular one, normal requests, like so for instance, if it was an embassy or something like that, it wasn't so urgent, they could take you know two, three, four weeks to have them all polished up. But in this case, it was an emergency request because of the of the situation. And um, the, the, then it landed in headquarters on a supervisor. There's a lot of reasons for this too, which I hate to go into, but if you read my memo, I accused them of being careerist because there were FISA judges who had gone after agents before this for not having perfect FISA applications. And uh, one agent had been reamed out like the year before. Well, what does that do? Now, all of the uh, successors are afraid to do their job, essentially. And I think there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. Plus, they just didn't take it seriously coming from Minnesota. Plus, apparently, <coughs> hadn't read memos. These other key memos, the April 2001 memo. Now, also back in, back in um, uh, uh, August of 2001, we did not have these great computer systems that exist now. You know, everybody now just Googles. And, you know, of course, in the, in the agencies, they do something similar. They just Google. You couldn't do that. In the FBI, it was a 10-step process to even check something in the computer system. Um, now, I will say, Robert Mueller used that. He relied on that when he testified to the Senate Judiciary and other agencies, that that was what he placed all the problems on was this antiquated computer system. 
And even I, when I testified, I brought it up too. You know what? It was not just the antiquated computer system. There was a lot more to it. Because in some of these memos, it actually has their names on them. You didn't need a computer. The Phoenix memo, which uh, that agent found terrorist suspects in Phoenix uh, in flight school, which would have dovetailed. I mean, now you get one, now you get a FISA application saying, oh, this guy's a terrorist suspect in flight school. Well, if you knew about the Phoenix memo, and the Phoenix memo said, check all the flight schools, urgent to check all the flight schools. Musawi stuck out like a sore thumb. That's why these these uh, flight instructors called the FBI. You know who else would have probably stuck out like a sore thumb? Because all of the people who were in his flight training said the same thing was Mohammed Atta. They said the same thing. So after 9-11, Mueller uh, kept saying there was no way the FBI could have prevented 9-11. We had no information. We had no clue. And I listened to it. I went, oh, my, what a cir- circling the wagon. They aren't telling the truth. So reporters, though, finally, there was one at Newsweek. There was one in the New York Times, one in the Star Tribune even. <clears throat> and they were getting little pieces of information about this. And But it took months and months and months of, of uh, them leaking out dribs and drabs that, no, there was quite a bit of information, quite a lot. And, you know, now why, did, why wasn't it read, acted on? Uh, shared with other agencies? Why didn't uh, someone warn the federal air uh, administration, uh, airline administration, that they had to lock their cockpit doors? You know, that was a key thing. I mean, that's the easiest way to prevent 9-11 is just for that warning to have gone. The agents in Minnesota insisted that the FAA be warned at headquarters. And guess what? They watered down the warning. Oh, we don't know. When you do these oral briefings, you don't know how much it was watered down. You know one thing, even words were changed in the draft declaration. They changed words to make it more watered down. So we don't know what it, what he told the Did he tell the FAA, oh, I, just ha- I have to give you this warning because in our Minneapolis office, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. That could be the way they said it. We don't know. The agent here tried himself to do his own warning locally. Shut, you know, look at your airlines. This is a danger. But all of this stuff, you know, was all covered up after 9-11, all covered up. So when I was asked to be, um, you know, uh, debriefed by the Joint Intelligence Committee, first of all, Cheney fought the Joint Intelligence Committee for months. So finally, when he could not uh, fight it anymore, then they finally started it in the spring. The FBI had put up a timeline that was very self-serving. It left out a lot of the damning information and made them look good. And so when they said that Colleen Raleigh was, you know, I was going to be one of the people. Oh, there was there's more to this. I don't need to go into all this dirty laundry, but there's even more to it because this cover up was pretty was uh, there was even a meeting after 9-11. It was a, a meeting, which I would say was, this is our story and we're sticking to it. And they called the Phoenix office and the Minneapolis office to headquarters for this meeting. This is our story and we're sticking to it. Now, the agents were not going to stick to the story. They were going to tell the truth. I mean, they were young. Uh, you know, like I joined because I was naive and, and idealist. And, you know, they were still very idealist. The, the one main agent was only three years in. 
and they were going to tell the truth. And in fact, he did tell the truth when he finally testified. Um, and he said it was criminal negligence on the part of head, FBI headquarters. And, you know, at least it's that. I would say it was even bordering on recklessness from everything I know. But, um, but uh, yeah, so I, I decided that I had tw uh, 20 years in, 21 years in. I had 21 years in the FBI, but I still had to go another two and a half, three years to make it to my pension. But I thought that since they were making it into a legal issue, there was no probable cause. Everybody at headquarters, this National Security Law Unit, three who ranked over outranked me by three, you know, two or three ranks up higher. Um, they were all uh, using this this uh, the excuse that it was not um, legal, it, that we didn't have probable cause, and so um, so. I was this, even though my role was pretty small and all I did was I said, you had to get a warrant and yes, you should go get a, try to FISA a warrant. If that doesn't work, then you can go the, try to get a criminal warrant. That's what everybody said. I didn't, I wasn't any kind of genius on this. This was the standard, standard, uh, you know, advice is get a warrant. And if, if you, if you can't get the FISA warrant, then get the criminal warrant. Um, so the, um, uh, I decided to kind of to say that no, there was plenty of probable cause. So I wrote this twelve page, and I wrote all these things in the in my memo about as much as I could put in there. I wasn't able to sleep for two nights before I went to this because I knew I would be forgetting what to say. And when it, when the debriefing was with minders, all of these internal debriefings, you're not alone with the people you're telling. You've got agency people sitting right next to you. And in fact, I'm sitting right in the same hallway as the people who were involved in the cover. I'm sitting right across from their offices. So, you know, um, what I did was I put it on paper. And then when when we were done, it was it took about two hours, you know, talking to me. And they said there was three people in the uh, three agency people in the Joint Intelligence Committee. The Joint Intelligence Committee hired about 30 retired agency folks. CIA, uh, NSA, Secret Service, uh, and FBI. And in fact, the guy, the 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 guy that was in charge of the four or five uh, staffers from the JICI, the Joint Intelligence Committee. And there were five or so that were doing the FBI. The guy that was in charge of that was a former FBI special agent lawyer. And he was he was a lawyer who was a unit chief of one of the legal units in, in FBI headquarters for a long time, 15, 20 years. I knew him a little bit. I probably talked to him a few times. I knew him a little bit. And it wasn't like I didn't trust him, but he was in a news article as having covered up the Waco inquiry. So John Danforth had done this Waco inquiry years before. And that same lawyer, this when he was working for the FBI, had been accused of covering up things. And I didn't know even know if it, that was true. I actually, I thought, I didn't think it was true even. I, I was still thinking, oh, I don't think that's true. But it was planted enough doubt in my head that I thought, you know, I can't just do an oral debriefing because right. they can say anything afterwards. I know this from the FBI and how we, we do interviews and what goes on paper afterwards. And I, so that's why I put it into writing. And so when we were all done and they said, Colleen, is there anything that we've left out or forgotten? And I said, well, if there was, and I went into my briefcase 
And I said, if there is, it's in this memo. And then I just handed that memo to them and I walked out and I could just see their, all their faces, you know? So then I caught a cab. No, then I went to in, internal affairs and the FBI. I, I had five of these. One was for the Jicky staffers. Then I went to internal affairs. We called it, um, Oh, I, uh, office of Internal Professional Responsibility or something like that. So I found their office and I left them a copy. Then I went to the Director Mueller's office, left a copy with his secretary, and then I caught a cab to the Senate. And the Senate was under lockdown, was was guarded because of anthrax. You couldn't even get yeah. in. There was this big, long line. You had to go through this big thing. And I found a security guard and I said, I have these two envelopes one for Senator Feinstein, one for Shelby. And this security guard actually took me up to their offices and they were they were closed envelopes, confidential, Senator Feinstein, Senator Shelby. I only reason I put their names on is I'd seen their names in a newspaper article as asking questions during these Jickey hearings. And then I uh, dropped these two off for uh, for each one of their offices. And then I came down and caught a cab to the airport. And literally, I was shaking this entire time. And it's like, I didn't think that I could be fired or, I mean, in hindsight now, knowing what's happened to uh, Daniel Hale and Albury and all the other whistleblowers, I should have not been so stupid about this. But I didn't think I could be, I didn't, I was even shocked that they were talking about firing me afterwards and that it took these four senators to write to Mueller and to uh, Ashcroft that I shouldn't be fired. But um, I, I certainly didn't think I could be put in prison. Everyone I was talking to had top secret clearance. So how can you how can you rig up a case to prosecute somebody when you're only giving information to other people that uh, that are have top secret clearances, including Feinstein and and Shelby? But I, and they and they tried to go back and say that the that the mention of French intelligence was classified, and that was was that that was sort of what they latched onto as a way yeah. to try to say that this was top secret somehow. Yeah, the words the words French intelligence. Afterwards, they blacked that. Uh, uh, there was like a two two places in there that they blacked out, and that was why they said it was all classified. Yeah, two couple of words, French intelligence. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of know what's sensitive. You know, I worked in this stuff. I was a freedom right. of information person for 13 years. I kind of know sensitive techniques. And inf I was in, you know, informants. I know these things. I But I did put the word French. I didn't put their names. I didn't put the name right. of the agency. I just put French intelligence. But that was enough. <laughs> it should hardly be surprising that a French citizen, that the French intelligence agency would have information about a French citizen. That seems that seems yeah. very logical. <laughs> One, but it's, I, it's I guess, a, an excuse. It's an ex this is goes back I, to these reasons for classifying are are always specious. Like I said, there's a little bit that needs to be classified, but hardly anything. Especially over time, it doesn't need to be. But they use this as an excuse because they want to cover up stuff. Yeah. One one area that I that I wanted to talk about, and I know some of this could get into kind of bureaucratic and legal issues that may be above the heads of of uh, certainly me as not not being a lawyer, but I I did want to talk about um, because one of the things that you've mentioned is that basically everybody who saw this information, it, you know Harry Samet yourself, 
people, the, the liaison person in France, the French intelligence officials who relayed information to you. I mean, over and over, you know, we had there are quotes from FBI staffers and CIA staffers that seem to indicate that they they thought that Musawi might crash a plane into a building. I mean, this was again and again the sense that came through from so many of the people who were exposed to this information, and yet. Three people in particular talking about Michael Maltby, Rita Flack, Dave Frasca, who was Dave Frasca in particular being the head of the the radical fundamentalist unit at that point, they seemed not on the same page at all. And I'm I'm curious, what was your? Did you have exposure to them? Did you have conversations with them? Uh, did you? Did, can you? Do you have a sense of where they? Why there would have been such a disconnect between what? So many other people within the FBI and outside the FBI seem to understand the threat Musawi posed versus these individuals who who not only didn't see it, but in fact were obstructing, seem to be obstructing an investigation into Musawi. And and they're higher ups too. And again, not knowing what went into the briefing, because we don't we know they didn't read it. So the higher ups that were above the uh the section chief, the section chief is the higher up. That's Rollins, I think. And he eventually owned up that he was briefed, but we don't know what kind of briefing, but they obviously didn't care either. And, you know, right. again, you know, it, it's, uh, and, and Spike Bowman, who was the national security law unit, uh, lawyer, um, obviously must not have, you know, cared too much about it. Um, some of the other people under him, there were other lawyers that were under him. And I did have one, uh, one quick email, it's in the inspector general report, but it's basically this, uh, my advice that you also had, and he didn't disagree that you should seek a FISA warrant first and then, uh, go get the higher level, which would be, if you fail to get a criminal warrant on the higher level, then you go to get the FISA warrant. It looks like you're trying to do an end run. So if you go for the lower level, and then it fails. Then you go for the higher level. So that's all. I had this very short, quick one-liner at the end of the day to this underling in the law unit. And other than that, there was more to this because there were telephone calls. The agents were making telephone calls to headquarters. That's where the acting supervisor in Minnesota said, this is a guy who could fly into the World Trade Center. Um, they went to their acting, uh, acting uh, special agent in charge. And he told them that he had made a call up the chain. When I testified to the Senate Judiciary, I, I think it was Feinstein who asked me a question. Well, why don't you just, why don't you call someone? Why don't I said, don't you understand the pecking order? If you call one level above yourself, you're in serious trouble. You can't do that in these bureaucratic things. You know, it's very dangerous to go. You know, when I when I told you about FBI Director Mueller, when I met him finally for these minutes before I testified, he said, Colleen, you know, if this ever happens again, just please call me. And I looked at him. Right. Uh, no one calls the FBI director. You'd be in so much trouble, you know, but you don't even do that more than one rank. You can call me. I had actually a couple of times I had I was kind of a brazen person and I had called the head of the public affairs, uh, a guy named Collingwood. I had called him you know, way above my my rank a couple of times on. We had a top fugitive once I had done this, but you don't do this. You don't call. So I explained to her, though, there's a pecking order. So the agents couldn't do this. They couldn't make these calls. But what they did is they went to the CIA, they tried to go around, and then they actually were trying to get their boss, 
to call bosses at headquarters. And he told them he had, but he turns out it wasn't true. He, he was afraid to call too. Uh, so he had never, he never did it. And yeah, it was, there's a lot there and it's a lot more. Okay. So when you really, my 12 pages just kind of scratches the surface, the inspector general report that my memo led to, which is, I think it's three, four, 500 pages long that inspector general that does a better job. That does a lot better job than my 12 pages because it covered the CIA business in California with the hijackers and it covers the Phoenix memo. But even that inspector general report, we now know that agents lied to them. The agents that were at the CIA counterterrorism center were told they had to lie during these official inquiries. And so even that IG report is flawed and, and doesn't go very far. And of course, the 9-11 commission was written by somebody who, who uh, was biased towards protecting Saudi Arabia and all this. And so, so all of these inquiries have these problems and it, it actually is a little complicated. So fixing the wall, fixing some of these things would require the truth. That's what I tried to tell the Senate judiciary. That's the reason why, why would I do something like this? Why would I write this? You know, I could just, you know, say, I could have just said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to even talk about it. Just keep quiet. Uh, like most people do and, and everybody. But, you know, if you if you have people dying because of terrorism <clears throat> and then you're listening to Robert Mueller say there's nothing we could have done. There was no information. I mean, that's completely opposite. And there was plenty of information. It just was not handled right. And and and, and Tenet, I found out I didn't actually know when I wrote the memo. I don't think I did know. I think I learned that maybe a little bit afterwards. Tenet was briefed. The, the director of central intelligence was briefed on August 23rd or 24th. Well, that's that actually, that information for once made it up. It made it up to the right person. And then what, so, so, so George Tenet, why didn't you do anything with this? And he just kind of shrugs. He can't give you a good answer why he didn't do anything. Oh, it wasn't my job. I thought the FBI would handle that. You're the director of central intel intelligence. You're the one who knows about Kuala Lumpur. You're the one who knows all this stuff. You know, and then he says, it wasn't my job. I mean, that's incredible. And he got away with it. <clears throat> he got away, the 9-11 commission. He got the Medal of Honor. <laughs> what did he get? The Presidential Medal of Freedom or something? I wrote yeah. an article. Uh, I wrote a Huffington Post about it because George Bush is putting this big gold medal around him. And I thought, oh, my gosh, have you ever seen that? That should be in your article. <laughs> the, the I, I actually just posted that photo on my Twitter the other day because it's yeah. it's a, just astonishing. It, it's it's how the system works. It's exactly how it works, because you go along to get along. And if you rock the boat, you end up, you know, at best, somebody like me who, who ended my career. You know, I had to, I had to get out of, uh, I had to step down from my legal position um, and loose. I lost a whole, um, I, I lost, I had to go back from GS 14 to GS 13. So that affected my pension forever. I lost some of my pension uh, for speaking out. And, um, but I'm glad, I mean, in high, I mean, I'm really glad I did this. I don't know how I could live with myself. I was having a tough time. I couldn't even live with myself back in 2000. Too, you know, when this was going on, I could not believe that people were not wanting to get to the bottom of it. But it was just so, you know, the system is so bad. And everybody, you know, you see this over and over with different scandals and different things that it takes 20, 30, 40, 50 years for people. But by the time they learn the truth of stuff, you know, 
it's way past it's it's moot you know in fact they'll only release the information once it's completely moot and everybody's right. died and nobody cares anymore that then they might release it then there's a chance they'll release it but when it matters when there's a chance of fixing a problem it's always going to be top secret and covered up you know dr- drone warfare is that way right now except um Daniel Hell released some information about it. But if there wasn't for whistleblowers, you would never know any of these things that you're, oh, no, you're killing wet, wet, wedding parties and, and all kinds of, you know. And, and actually, now the, the government, I think, to a great extent, realizes they have to stop reporting. It's not just whistleblowers. They have to stop journalists and publishers. You're seeing all this censorship now. Uh, talk about a, a knee-jerk reaction, but they're, you know, they're actually now censoring quite a lot of information. They've got Facebook and, and all of the social media to do their bidding and censor stuff. And I never thought we'd get to this. I mean, during the, during the lull, I, I kind of joined the FBI after the church committee. You know, two years after the church committee is when I joined, after Vietnam War. And so I had kind of a luxury of working in that period before 9-11. So before, between Vietnam and 9-11, you know what? We followed the FBI, the attorney general guidelines. We wouldn't have done these things. I mean, it's shocking that the stuff that when you read about Albury and what happened and he, what he was asked to, it's shocking because that whole time period of the 20 years between uh, during Vietnam syndrome. Uh, no, we followed those church committees and people actually complained about the church committee being too strict and stuff, but we followed it pretty strictly. And then after 9-11, it was the big pretext, the big excuse to change every. It changes everything. Torture is okay. Mass surveillance, illegal things. Everything is illegal because, and people don't care. Yeah, so I think that we've, we've covered the Masawi angle, I think, pretty well. And, uh, but Ben and I spent a whole lot of time looking into 9-11 you know, my dissertation deals with state crimes and, and U.S. hegemony, and at the very least, I can say that the 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 involvement of the U.S. with jihadis before 9/11, and then when Obama under Obama it gets picked up again. Although I think it really is a policy that dates towards the end of the Bush administration, as Seymour Hersh wrote in his article, "The Redirection," about using Sunni extremists again to like change policy after the Iraq War had sort of stalled, but so these things seem pretty clearly a, like a criminal kind of a thing. But there's, you know, one of the things that we get into in the article is like how much of this is, oh, we've, we've, we've got to protect these guys because they're, we use them as foreign policy pawns. But then you, you think of, but then 9-11 happens. But 9-11 advances the same general agenda that the use of these people as proxy forces before 9-11 was achieving, you know, control over Central Asia and the Middle East, you know, extension of U.S., you know, uh, business, you know, economic and political penetration of these, of these areas. And so, I mean, do you, do you think that it, on some level, these people that were higher up blocking these things from being exposed, I mean, is it, how plausible is it to you that these people would have been thinking that, you know, a new Pearl Harbor or a lesser scale attack actually wouldn't be bad for their bureaucratic interests and for the bigger, the interests of the people who actually, you know, your Brzezinski's and so on, these level of, of, 
of people in terms of the U.S. foreign policy establishment. I mean, how how what what should be our assessment of these like so-called failures? Is it malfeasance, misfeasance? I mean, what's what's the range of possibilities in your mind to explain these things? You know, you know and I think when you have a long trail of different people in different leadership positions, and they've all done something. Um, if you go back to the project for the new American century, they have this very, um, of course, really ridiculous notion that by bringing democracy, you know, that's the euphemistic thing that will will gain control of the Mideast, regime change, et cetera. But Madeleine Albright called it bringing democracy. So she wrote books and articles about if you could just topple these uh, governments and bring democracy, she wrote in a euphemistic way. Well, it starts way back then. And, you know, then everybody adds to it. You get to the project for the new American century and, and they basically are adopting her, her notion. It's, it's like uh, more realist people say, well, you don't bring democracy by toppling the government, causing chaos and destruction. And somehow it's going to be magic and you'll get democracy. It's, there were realists that said no, but, you know, maybe it was just a way to sell it to the public. I think the other thing that goes on is that the people that are, very in the system for a long period of time, uh, the elites in Washington, D.C., people like Karl Rove, you know, working for different politicians and able to use little dirty tricks uh, to skew facts against, it. Um, you know, of course, with with Trump and stuff, everybody knows these things. But even if you go way back to Karl Rove and McCain and stuff, he would make up little lies, you know, because it's all fine in politics. Well, what happens is the people in D.C. start to realize that that works, that that facts actually don't matter too much, that if you have the media doing the spinning, that uh, you can, quote unquote, make your own reality. And certainly the, the, the story of almost all of the wars that the United States has launched in, in history uh, with these different, you know, false flags like the Gulf of Tonkin and and Lusitania and, and uh, sinking of the Maine. And I mean, on and on, there's this almost every single one of these things was launched via an official lie. And so they realized that the true facts don't matter. And that if you, if you can, you can fashion or create your new Pearl Harbor. Okay. So if it doesn't happen, something happens, you can make it. And in going back to Iraq and Iran, a lot, there's that famous country song. I don't know that there's a song that came out after 9-11. And I don't know the name of the song or anything, but one line in there is, I don't know the difference between Iraq and Iran. And the guy singing, it's real proud. He doesn't know the difference. And so when you, when you see the difference between we're going to topple Iraq to put the Shiites in power, uh, excuse me, to, yeah, the Shiites in power, and then after a while, that doesn't look so good because they were aligned with Iran. So now we got to go back to operating the Sunnis. Does, does the American public really ever see this? No, they honestly, they're more like that country Western. They don't even know the difference. Uh, it takes maybe years and years of trying to explain. Saddam was an enemy of Al-Qaeda. Um, when Cheney, it was Dick Cheney and others, but they were saying Saddam was behind 9-11. They got 70% of the American public to believe that Saddam was behind 9-11. And that lasted for a long period of time. 
that actually, that uh, lie persisted in people's heads. Why? Because people didn't know the difference. All those countries over in the Mideast, I don't know, I know they can be different sects. Uh, there was, they were murdering uh, Sikhs, Indian Sikhs, because people didn't know the difference. They were foreigners. And, and you know, people in Washington, D.C. realize this can work. They can actually do these kind of bamboozling things, and they do work for a while. They don't work forever, but they can work for a couple, three years, and and uh, which is what the, the Saddam being behind 9-11, and then go about your strategic operations that, that are all very nefarious. You know, they're there. And, and, and yeah, you know, maybe some of these guys, too, in Washington, when they're very, very old, you know, they say, well, I won't have to. Uh, I, McNamara was a good example. You know, McNamara, they caught him before he died in that fog of war. And he finally had to say, I'm uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I was did these dumb things, you know. But most people don't make it that long. And they hardly ever then own up. Someone was asking the other day, did, did Jimmy Carter ever admit that this was dumb to allow Zbigniew Brzezinski to do this, Charlie Wilson's war, what led into Charlie Wilson's war? And, and no one could remember that he ever has. And, and Jimmy Carter's not a bad guy. But, you know, has he ever, and he's, he's really old now, so he'd have nothing to lose. But maybe he has. Maybe he's, he, maybe he's admitted to his close friends that this wasn't the best idea. But, you know, that's the thing was when you're in power, first of all, it goes to your head. You know, J. Edgar Hoover wasn't wasn't necessarily an evil baby. But, you know, 47 years in power, uh, it finally, you know, people get drunk on power. And I think that's a lot of this. When, when I always send my emails, I always have that little statement that uh, power is always dangerous because it uh, it attracts the worst and it corrupts the best. And I'll tell you what, I was only 24 years in the FBI, but I saw that. I mean, that's why it so resonates with me, because when people get in power and politicians and military generals and, you know, all this money, that's uh, even our FBI director, Louis Free. I didn't think he was so terrible when he was the director. I knew him and everything. But, you know, the Mujahideen cult offer him thousands of dollars and 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 different corporations offer him this money. He doesn't walk away from it. He, he takes it. And I, I wish more people would be more, uh, what's the word, cynical in a way, much more distrusting. Uh, <clears throat> we get all these sugary stories on television and the heroes and all this. And the truth is, you know, that uh, people who are our leaders, who have been around the block, they're going to have lots of problems, a uh, compromised character. It's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, you were mentioning the country music song where the guy is boasting about Iran and Iraq. But I, it, one thing that is troublesome to me is that you have people who are, you know, sort of on the left or liberals or lefties of some kind. And they often fall for these things, too. I mean, the Syria business later where the, the white helmets, for example, are obviously paid for by U.S. and British intelligence. And they were organized by a British intelligence officer. The idea that like we're uh, we're that the U.S. is financing some charity organization to help people. In this country that we're, where we're where we're flooding them with jihadis who are going around chopping everyone's head off, but there's like a lot of I mean some of them are probably plants on the on Twitter and stuff, but 
This will, I mean, they nominated well, the White Helmets for an Oscar, a, a documentary yeah, on the and, and Amy Goodman, Democracy Now. Amy Goodman shilled for the White Helmets. And, uh, you know, I know knew her a little bit, too. And, you know, the question is, I can't imagine she doesn't understand that. I think she's might be much more the example now of corruption by of power and wealth. That's that's my opinion. I don't know. She's rich, as I understand it. Uh, yeah, and I think this is the problem. I mean, she didn't start off this way, but this this money is corrupting. You know, it does, and so yeah, she she falls right into it. We have a lot of, of course, RussiaGate. Uh, you know, Aaron Mate tried his darndest to get some facts. This is where I'm saying is that this this Carl Rovian notion that the facts no longer matter. We can make our own reality, and. Somebody who's armed with facts, Aaron Mate had a lot of facts, and it's hard to make a difference because people, people like like the uh, the narrative. You know, they like to, and liberals are no exception. In fact, they may be worse in some ways because they're not they don't have that realist. Uh, they they don't have a kind of a more cynical nature. You know, Colleen Rowley, thank you very much for your time today. It was uh, it was great talking to you. Yep, thank you, and good luck with your with your uh, work. I want to thank J.G. Michael for engineering this episode, Casey Moore for his awesome artwork, and Mock Orange for providing our music. That about wraps it up, friends. Let's keep minding the darkness.